Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. So today, if you want to properly care for property or for value, then you have to care about the health of people. You have to care about the health of the planet because without the people and without the planet, there is no value and there is no return. And so in our capacity as an investor, the foundation works to be a fiduciary for the 21st century. Hey, everyone. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard of the Sierra Club. It's one of the largest environmental organizations in the United States with about 4 million members and a history of advocacy going back to 1892. But what do you know about the Sierra Club Foundation? It's a $200 million organization that, as you'd guess, supports the Sierra Club. It also takes on ambitious initiatives to leverage its resources to protect the environment transform the energy system, and more. One of those initiatives focuses on shifting trillions of dollars out of the fossil fuel economy. It's a good example of the level of ambition of these organizations. To learn more, I sat down with Dan Chu and Pedro Enriquez de Silva. Dan is the executive director of the foundation. Pedro is the director of the Shifting Trillions program. We had a fascinating conversation about the history, role, and accomplishments of both organizations, about the goals and strategy of the Shifting Trillions program, about being a 21st century fiduciary, about the upcoming election, and much more. This episode will push your thinking about the role of Sierra Club and environmental organizations more generally. Enjoy. Dan and Pedro, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, I'm a longtime Sierra Club fan and will date myself that it was probably back in 2005 or so when I attended a Sierra Club member conference and got to meet Al Gore. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you today. Let's get started with some basics. Dan, help us get oriented. Most listeners have probably heard of the Sierra Club but I bet many don't actually know about its history or the role it plays today. Will you please help us just get started and tell us a bit about Sierra Club? Hey, well, first, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to talk about the Sierra Club and and then also how the Sierra Club Foundation relates. The Sierra Club was really established as a entity, gosh, uh, 135 years ago in 1892. Ironically, it's the same day as my birthday, May 28th, although I was born (laughs) well after 1892. It was established in California by John Muir and some of their co-founders. They were just blown away by the incredible beauty of the Yosemite Valley, yet it was under a lot of threat for logging, mining, grazing, and they really wanted to protect that area. 
So they had a theory of change, which still holds today, which was bringing people together in community and going on outings in nature. And by bringing people to these beautiful places that deserve to be protected, you would recreate that grassroots and individual love for those places, which would then fuel people to stand up and do the advocacy and defend those places that they needed to do. That's always been the theory of change. And of course, since then, the Sierra Club in the early 20th century played a significant role in getting the national park system established. And then state by state through their chapters had a role in probably every single national park establishment and that kind of thing. Today, there's about 64 state chapters. 13 of those are in California. In addition to that, there's hundreds of local groups that are at an even more localized community level than the chapters that are part of the Sierra Club. Thousands of volunteers, including, as I said, outings leaders. We're collectively really focused on the three biggest challenges of our time, which is the uh, accelerating extinction crisis, the climate crisis, and the fact that the movement to protect our planet is not big enough or powerful enough to address those challenges. Thanks, Dan. You mentioned that you'll offer more context around Sierra Club Foundation, where you are the executive director. So the foundation is different from Sierra Club. Can you explain a bit of its history and how the foundation and the club are different? Yeah, well, just to say a little bit about my history with the Sierra Club, I, uh, in 2013, was hired by the Sierra Club to become their first national director for all the work to protect land, water, wildlife, and get people outdoors. I really worked over at the Sierra Club for about three or four years. And then in late 2016, I was brought on to become the executive director of the Sierra Club Foundation. Uh, The foundation is a separate entity. The foundation is really a 501c3 nonprofit, which in IRS terms means it's a nonprofit that can accept tax-deductible contributions from individuals and foundations. The Sierra Club is and has been for many years what's called a 501c4 social welfare membership organization. So they cannot accept tax-deductible contributions, but they can do a lot more advocacy and in some cases support electoral and political work that a 501c3 cannot. So we serve as a fiscal sponsor for tax-deductible work the Sierra Club can do on behalf of the foundation. One piece. And then as you'll hear a little bit from Pedro, we're increasingly at the foundation leaning in on a campaign to help shift trillions of dollars away from an extractive economy to one that's restorative and just for all. Fantastic. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, definitely excited to hear from Pedro about the Shifting Trillions program. Give us a little bit more context just on the two organizations in terms of size and how much funding goes from one organization to the other, size of team. A bit of that context, I think, will help set the stage. The Sierra Club collectively has an annual budget of about $160 million, and that supports over 800 staff throughout the country. And as I said, there are probably six or 7,000 identified volunteer leaders. It's very much a bottom-up, grassroots-driven organization through its chapters, groups, uh, the volunteers. And then, as I said, the staff are spread out across the country in a number of actual and virtual offices. The Sierra Club Foundation, we have a staff of about 12, and we oversee assets under management around $200 million on a given day. And those dollars, as I said, come from donors and foundations. And so we steward those dollars through investments and cash management 
and then provide funding to the Sierra Club throughout the year to advance their work on things like transforming our energy system or permanently protecting land, water, wildlife. Fantastic. So very clearly a small but mighty team and very helpful for driving much of the work the Sierra Club is able to do. Dan, as an independent fiscal sponsor, you raise money and then use it to fund Sierra Club activities. There are several issue areas that you focus on. What are those issues and how are they decided and how do they inform your capital allocation? As I said before, there's really kind of three main areas that we'd like to frame it up. One is that or three main problems, if you will. One is that, as you know, we're facing the greatest crisis of extinction for living beings since probably 100 million years. So the first crisis is the extinction crisis and the number of species that are blinking out every day due to shrinking habitat, pollution, and frankly, a lack of focus and commitment from leaders across the world to protect those areas. Secondly, is addressing the climate crisis, which has really been the result of 200 years of a fossil fuel economy and extracting fossil fuels and pumping carbon into the air without any regard for its consequences. And we're increasingly seeing the real downside of that kind of economy over the last 200 years. So secondly, we're really focused on helping the Sierra Club and our partners fundamentally transform our energy sector essentially to electrify everything for everyone, and that those electrons come from clean, renewable energy. Thirdly, kind of overarching all that is the fact that the social movement to push policymakers, leaders, and decision makers over capital, that movement is not powerful enough or sufficient enough to address the climate and extinction crises. So continuing to dig in deep and provide that grassroots support, grassroots energy, and make sure that people in every community across the country and across the world feel that they have the power to be part of something much bigger than themselves in order to address these existential crises that we face today. Well, Dan, you're clearly experienced and skilled at being able to communicate about these challenges in a really compelling and powerful way. It makes me think that the role of the foundation is more than just raising and allocating capital. How do you see Sierra Club Foundation and its broader role? Certainly, uh, as I talked uh, quite a bit about just now, our role as a fiscal sponsor, where we're helping to identify and raise funds to support the important work of the Sierra Club and its grassroots partners is critical. But secondly, we feel that even though we have assets under management of about $200 million, which in the scheme of things when we're talking about the need to shift trillions isn't much, we've been really thinking hard about what leadership role can we play with a well-regarded brand, the Sierra Club brand, to lead others who have control over millions, billions, and trillions of dollars in capital to help lead the way towards this restorative and just economy that we all deserve. You'll hear from Pedro in a little bit, we've been doing a lot of deep work into how we show up as an active asset owner for those shares of companies that we own through our investments, how we can do catalytic capital investing. So bringing in money early into innovative clean energy solutions and clean energy projects that also create greater economic benefit for underserved communities across the country. And third, how we can continue to play a thought leadership role that brings people together 
Because clearly there's a lot of interest, energy, and expertise spread out across many people on how to shift trillions of dollars in the right way. But we have a sense that there isn't a coordinated movement collectively to bring those people together around some common desired outcomes and really collectively create the situation where the sum is greater than the parts. So that's really some of the core vision or purpose of our Shifting Trillions initiative. And Pedro's come on board. He came on last spring to lead this effort and just super excited to have him talk to you a little bit more about the kind of work that he's leading. Thanks, Dan. Let's do that. Let's hear from the man himself, Pedro. Really excited to hear about the Shifting Trillions program. I think it's called the Shifting Trillions for Climate Justice, an initiative that you lead. Tell us about the program and what it's aiming to achieve. Shifting Trillions is really about how we move as quickly as possible towards the world we all deserve. Fundamentally, it comes down to this premise that capital is not just money. It's the financial, relational, and intellectual resources that make things move. And in recent years, there's been huge focus on policy, technology, activism as a source of solutions to the climate crisis. And while each of these is crucial, most things on this planet are owned. They have a price tag. And if the owners aren't invested in making those things better, then they won't be any better. And so that's why if we want the world to move in any direction, we need capital to also move. And the Sierra Club Foundation is the foundation for a healthy planet. So that is, we're focused on contributing to every person's right to live in a healthy community with equitable systems on a thriving planet. And shifting trillions is really what we need to get there. Pedro, thanks for that context and the compelling idea that capital is the financial, relational, and intellectual resource that makes things move. You're trying to move trillions of dollars. Let's hear how you're using Sierra Club's diverse capabilities to do that. I've read that the foundation plays really three primary roles through shifting trillions. First, you're an investor. Second, you're an active asset owner. And third, you're a thought leader. Help us understand each of those roles and what it is that you're doing. Let's start with the investor role. Here, it really goes back to the role of the fiduciary. So these are your banks, your lawyers, your doctors. These are people who are entrusted with proper care and management of your money or your civic well-being or your health. And financial fiduciaries especially are the folks who are entrusted with the proper care and management of the property of others. All that value is couched in something, and it's couched in the health of our natural and social systems. So there is no real distinction between our social world and our natural world and financial assets. They're all dependent. Every single asset is dependent on the health of our world and the health of our social systems. And so as an investor and a fiscal sponsor, we're concerned with being a fiduciary for the 21st century and making sure our own fiduciaries are also managing their assets and specifically our assets as a part of that for today and not for 50 years ago. So today, if you want to properly care for property or for value, then you have to care about the health of people. You have to care about the health of the planet because without the people and without the planet, there is no value and there is no return. And so in our capacity as an investor, the foundation works to be a fiduciary for the 21st century. Our impact isn't only in the charitable programs we sponsor, but also in the assets that we hold. And so we work to maximize the impact of all our assets under management 
both through how we invest and how we engage. That's the first part. That's closely related to our role as an active asset owner. And when we think about owning assets actively, it's really about rethinking the relationship with ownership. So there's this idea that to own something is you purchase it and then you extract as much value from it as possible. But that's the same idea that led to the climate crisis. That's the same idea that led to our social and our health crises. And we see those in our world today. And so active ownership can't just be about ownership. It has to be about stewardship. When you have a home, you have to take care of it. And this place isn't just any home. This place we call Earth, it's, it's a living home. And so living things are things to relate to. They're not just things to control. And that's something that indigenous communities around the world have understood for millennia. It's something that black and frontline communities across this country understand. And it's something that we're really focused on as a foundation. In practice, that's part of what we've been engaging with big banks and asset managers like Goldman Sachs and BlackRock on. We want to make sure our assets aren't at risk before because of poor stewardship when it comes to the health of the planet and its communities. And we also want to make sure that our assets aren't at risk because of financing things which threaten the health of our communities and ecosystems and in doing so threaten the entire global economy, which leads us to this final piece of being a thought leader. We're really focused on the deeper picture that's often missed in this conversation that Dan spoke to earlier. People tend to think about climate as mostly a carbon problem or a math problem, but it's a lot deeper than that. It's an ideas problem and it's a values problem. Climate change is not this inevitable flaw of human nature. It's the emergent consequence of a way of looking at the world. And that way sees earth and people as a collection of resources to take from. And then it burdens people in the earth with the consequences of that taking. And so the solution that we see is in the approach that sees the earth as a living, breathing home that centers the health and well-being of all people and centers the people and ideas who stewarded sustainably for thousands of years and not just the approaches that in under 200 have brought us catastrophe. So without this approach, climate goals really won't succeed. And that's really what we're trying to do is make sure that we're successful in creating a healthy planet for all. Pedro, I love the framing around active ownership versus stewardship and also the notion of being a 21st century fiduciary. An example of the thought leadership role you just described is an article you wrote for Impact Alpha, which we can include in the show notes. Now, I'd love to understand the relationship between Sierra Club Foundation and Sierra Club on this issue. I understand that you're working together on Shifting Trillions, so give us a sense. How are your two roles distinct? I'll start, and I'd welcome Dan to hop in. One of those key ways is in how we engage various financial institutions in partnership with the Sierra Club's Fossil Free Finance team. The Fossil Free Finance program is exactly what it sounds like, right? They're working towards that fossil free world. And that's a big piece of what we think about when we think about shifting trillions. We really need to get to a place where we are moving away from fossil fuels, not only because of the emissions that they cause, but also because of the health effects of the direct extractions process, which are enormous and actually pose a significant risk as well to uh, global assets. So one way that we're doing that is through our partnership on engagement with various banks in our conversation. When we say engagements, that looks like a variety of things, everything from dialogue on understanding how banks are applying their risk frameworks, their risk management frameworks, or uh, taking advantage of opportunities in the renewable space in terms of their financing efforts as well as their client engagement efforts. 
Another thing that that looks like is in assessing how some of the world's largest asset managers are thinking about systemic risk and not just idiosyncratic risk. And more specifically, thinking about how as universal owners or anytime that you own a lot of assets, you're not just exposed to the risk that one business will underperform, right? You're exposed to the risk that climate change poses, that rising sea levels pose, that climate-related migration poses to the world's entire economy. And if you're one of those types of large asset holders who experience a lot of shocks or experience the effects of what happens on a global scale, then you should be concerned with global events, not the least of which are environmental and climate-related events. And so that's just one of the areas in which we partner with them. And I would welcome Dan to fill in here as well. I guess just to kind of frame this up as well is why banks in the first place. And so just talk a little bit about that. But we really have a ticking clock as it relates to how much carbon can continue to be put in the air. Estimates that were done a while ago basically point to the fact that we will have used our global carbon budget by 2030. So that's why 2030 comes up quite a bit as this existential date that's out there. Largely, that carbon is coming from fossil fuel activity, oil, gas, coal, associated methane, that kind of thing. Fossil fuel companies rely on financing from banks and from asset managers like BlackRock and others. So we determined that, look, banks are customer facing. They do care about their reputation. They are making net zero commitments. And we just want to uh, hold them accountable for what they say they care about, which is the health and welfare of the earth and their customers. As we look at engaging them through a variety of ways that Pedro's talked about, all we're saying to them is put your money where your mouth is. If you're seriously saying that you want to play a leadership role in creating a sustainable planet for your shareholders, because that's ultimately your responsibility, we believe you're falling far short of that in what you're actually financing, and in fact, making it worse by financing fossil fuel companies. And in addition to that, carbon impact, financing fossil fuel companies and other extractive industries has a significant effect on communities, be it pollution, uh, be it public health concerns. And once again, we feel that that becomes a real material risk to them as a business and ultimately depresses their value to shareholders like ourselves. Great. Thank you both. To me, it sounds like Sierra Club Foundation is working more as an investor and an asset owner exerting influence through actually putting money on the table. And meanwhile, Sierra Club is working on the advocacy side of trying to shift thinking and shift behavior. Pedro, you've been at it for about a year now. So how's it going? What sort of progress have you been able to achieve so far with Shifting Trillions? Yeah, that's right. It's been almost a year now, and it's going really well. So, so far, we've been able to build out our strategy for Shifting Trillions. We've built out a multi-year plan for Shifting Trillions, and we've begun to explore various coalitions with key partners in a number of areas. And this ranges from opportunities for thought leadership to co-investment to joint amplification of our efforts to really make sure that we are moving at the scale of trillions and not just millions. We've continued to deploy capital and support some of our catalytic capital investees who Dan spoke about earlier. These are folks who are really having a transformative impact in everything from community-led tribal clean energy to distributed solar and local jobs creation and economic development, everywhere from West Virginia to D.C. We also have a couple of exciting things in the pike. 
which we'll keep somewhat under the radar for now, but including, among other things, a podcast as well that's launching later this spring. Oh, great. I'll await invitations so we could complete the circle here. Absolutely. And at least happy to give you tips on the do's and don'ts, but excited to be a listener and support you that way. Without getting into details of things that you can't share for this year, high level, what are some of the goals that you can share and that you're most excited to pursue? For sure. So we're continuing to develop and deepen the impact of our role as an investor and as that active asset owner, both through how we invest and how we engage with the firms that we invest in. We're leveraging that threefold role of active owner, thought leader, and coalition builder to support the implementation of some of the significant climate legislation that's been passed, like the IRA and the Justice 40 provisions within. And that's going to be really important because a lot of policy We need the role of public-private partnerships in order to make the most of all of the global opportunities there are today, whether they be partnership opportunities or very localized opportunities, to make sure that capital is really shifting in the direction of moving things for people everywhere, rather than just getting locked up in sort of ideal land. A big piece of our work in 2024 is exploring our role as a foundation in facilitating that movement. And then the final piece is amplifying some of those key partnerships that we made in 2023 and partnering with the Sierra Club to effectively advance some of our shared purpose and goals. And these include preserving uh, land, water, air, and wildlife, supporting people and justice everywhere, and then transforming our energy system to support a healthy planet and climate. Thanks, Pedro. Dan, this is a great moment to bring you back in. You've been working now to support Sierra Club as the executive director of the foundation for over seven years. And as you mentioned, you were at Sierra Club itself before that. I'd love to get a sense of the types of programs that you embark on and their level of ambition. Give us a sense of some of the progress and achievements you've seen during your tenure. I think one example that's very real about shifting trillions that was a victory was the work of the Sierra Club, its partners, and Sierra Club Foundation in getting the Inflation Reduction Act passed through Congress a little over, I guess it was in a year and a half ago, August of 2021. That collectively would pump anywhere from 300 to $400 billion in tax credits, investments, and direct grants to advance clean energy solutions. And also with a particular focus on communities, the Biden administration identified as Justice 40 communities. So communities that just have been underinvested in as well. So what does that look like? Well, specifically from a tribal perspective, it means that more funds can be brought to tribes for advancing solar projects, for instance. As you probably saw, there's additional funds now to get more and more charging stations for electric vehicles, because that's been one of the bottlenecks, if you will, and the adoption of electric vehicles across the country. Those kinds of things are what we're really excited about. Nested within that are opportunities for career paths in climate. So the American Climate Corps is something the White House has launched, and we're really excited about that, both for job creation, as well as the fact that we're going to invest in a whole new generation of professionals to help solve the climate crisis. We, for years, have worked really hard to make sure that we're closing down aging, dirty coal plants, as well as stopping new ones from being built. And since our campaign started, we've just closed down, I believe it's the 375th coal plant in the United States in South Carolina. Increasingly, the remaining coal plants are in very difficult, politically charged red states. And we continue to have success there because the economics 
are not in favor of coal plants and are in fact increasingly in favor of solar and that kind of thing. So continue to push the utility companies to leapfrog coal plants to clean renewable energy, as well as, as we said, the electric vehicle piece. The third piece to all of that is as we think about transforming our energy system, how we do that in a way that continues to support and increase good quality union jobs in those sectors. To Pedro's point, as we advance on climate solutions, we want to do that in a way that creates a more equitable, just economy for everyone, not just for the few. The second piece I want to talk about is more on the land, water, wildlife area. And back in last year, on a personal level, I'm particularly proud about the expansion of about 750,000 acres of a new national monument around the existing Grand Canyon National Park. When I was at Sierra Club as the national director for our Wild America, we had worked with a bunch of partners and launched a campaign back in probably 2014 in deep support of tribal communities in the region, particularly the Havasupai tribes and the Navajo, who are facing a horrible legacy of uranium mining, uranium poisoning. So this new monument precludes any uranium right from turning into mining and is a huge victory but also really shows the increasing power and access that tribal leaders have to the White House and Department of Interior, which, of course, Secretary of Interior Deb Haaland is uh, an enrolled tribal member. So excited about that kind of land progress in our land protection work as well. And then finally, just continuing to work on getting more and more people outdoors and getting that funded through these local outings and outdoor programs with a goal of reducing the nature equity gap, because there's a big gap between people of color and their access to public lands and public spaces than there are for white folks. So that's something else we continue to focus on as well. Thanks, Dan. Those are indeed enormous contributions, and they really paint a picture of the scale at which you think and operate. So thank you for sharing. Stepping back for a moment, Sierra Club is one of over 30,000 environmental nonprofits in the United States The vast majority of those are very small organizations, and Sierra Club is, of course, one of the biggest. How would you describe the state of this field? Is it working, and how would you like it to change? It's working. It could always work better. I think the Sierra Club and the new leadership, Ben Jealous, who previously at one time was CEO for NAACP, has become the executive director at the Sierra Club full-time since February of 2023. The way he thinks about it is, The Sierra Club is one of the older trees in the forest, and there are all these other conservation, environmental groups, local justice groups that are younger trees, but collectively, we're all part of the same forest, and we all have our contribution to that ecosystem, be it a small tree or or a large older tree. As we move forward at the Sierra Club, our advantage is we have chapters at every level, groups at every level. We are structured very much as a grassroots organization. I think we have what very few other national organizations have, but many would pine for, is to have that kind of local connection, where we have a chapter leader who went to high school with a local elected official, or chapter folks who show up for a weekend cleanup restoration project in their community. And that just gives us enormous credibility that we're not just a green organization that is disconnected from their communities. To that point, all of the conservation policies that the Sierra Club have 
are come up from the grassroots and are approved by the chapters. All of the endorsements the Sierra Club does, because they can endorse candidates, not the foundation, but the club. All of those endorsements and the endorsement process starts at the chapter level and works its way up to national. I would just say that what I've seen evolve over the last five to 10 years is that increasingly we're engaging other grassroots partners, environmental justice groups and partners at that local level. And we're seeing our chapters evolve and transform in their leadership and increasingly having much more of a agenda and holistic approach that brings in public health and economic and racial justice into the traditional environmental work that they've been doing for years at the community level. The field, of course, largely depends on philanthropy. And it's a well-known fact that climate receives only about 2% of philanthropy. So a question for both of you, does this level of support need to change in a significant way to keep up with the challenges that we're facing? And if so, what needs to happen to dramatically increase climate philanthropy? Pedro, let's start with you. I would say it depends what we mean when we think about climate. And it depends what it means when those funds are going towards a climate solution or a climate project. If the solutions that we're thinking about are centered on the problem, the underlying problem, not the symptoms of the problem, if it's centered on the actions that are causing our climate crisis, that are causing environmental degradation, and the systems that enable those actions, then yes, we need more money to flow in that direction. On the other hand, if we're just looking to recreate some of the same problems, or if we're just looking for the palliative solutions, if we focus all of our attention on new technologies, but none of our attention on preserving the earth that is really, really good at handling itself. If we focus all of our attention on the sorts of ideas that lead us towards things um, that are completely unsustainable or industry that is completely unsustainable, instead of rethinking the way that industry can look and feel, then that's not really a solution. What I would say is that if we are really serious about changing the way the world looks and feels and supporting a healthy planet for all, then we have to really be thinking very seriously about what the definition of climate is. And more importantly, we have to be putting money towards those solutions that actually support that healthy planet for all, rather than solutions that continue to contribute to the same problems or are going to introduce new problems. That would be my take. I totally agree with Pedro that I think that foundations tend to categorize things that are actually systemic in nature. Let's say, for instance, a foundation is funding affordable housing programs or they're funding public health programs. Those also have a climate component and in some cases are made worse by the climate challenge or have solutions embedded with them that relate to climate. So in my mind, climate is really an overarching challenge that is embedded in all of those different categories that when you look at a report for a foundation, you may see that they don't fund climate, but they fund affordable housing. One example of that is affordable housing. One of the biggest costs for low-income families is the cost of energy to heat their home or to cook their food or whatever. And where does that energy come from if it's coming from a coal plant or a solar install? It has real climate implications. What we're really excited about in the Shifting Trillions work is not just about the dollars, but bringing together different sectors and leaders in different sectors 
to understand that this is all connected and that there are some opportunities to address these in a way that's much more holistic versus just attacking part of the problem or even worse, creating new problems because you approached it in a very narrow or siloed way. There's a big election happening in the United States this year, and some say it's the most important election that anyone alive today has experienced, and much is at stake. Dan, I know that you work for a 501c3. It's nonpartisan. You're not going to be able to comment on candidates, but I'm curious, from an environmental perspective, how important is this election? A healthy environment depends on a high-functioning democracy, number one, and number two, on a social net where people feel they have a shared sense of responsibility for collective assets. I think that that is really at the core here. And When I was overseeing the land, water, and wildlife work, I really talked about public lands in the frame of democracy in two ways. One, if you look way back at early writings, early democracies really depended on having shared public meeting places. If you couldn't meet in public, that's usually the first thing that goes away in an autocratic government is that it becomes illegal to meet together, certainly not in public. For me, public lands are an embodiment of the ability to bring people together from very disparate backgrounds or maybe political beliefs around a shared experience. That shared experience may be seeing a wolf in the wild. It may be enjoying the smell of the trees. But having those public lands, I think it's just such an important part of our underpinning for our democracy. And the flip side is a healthy democracy is needed to continue to make sure that officials will protect and resource these public lands. So that's how I think of like one real connection between democracy and public lands. The second I'd say is that a lot of our environmental protections and policies depend on public participation and the ability to participate. So the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, was established in the early 70s. It set the pace for what are called environmental impact statements or It just set this whole culture that said whenever a government agency proposes to do something, they have to go out and ask for public comment. They have to actually listen to the public, and then they have to treat citizens as stakeholders in those shared assets. That kind of democracy is at stake. There's a court case right now from the Supreme Court called the Chevron Principle, which basically, if that goes away, would say that agencies no longer can interpret laws and regulations by Congress to do the work, that everything will need to go through Congress. And those agencies are frankly paid for by taxpayer dollars and by each of us as the public. We're looking at those agencies to steward our shared assets. So hopefully that wasn't too far afield, but the Sierra Club and protecting the environment, it's always been about protecting the environment that is a shared resource for all. That only works if you have a high-functioning, engaged democracy. Thanks, Dan. Pedro, I keep reading about young voters being so turned off by politics or disappointed with candidates that they might not show up on election day. And we know that younger people care about climate. A recent poll showed that 60% of Americans aged 18 to 29 say that addressing climate change should be a priority. How do you think that concern about climate could be harnessed to help make sure young people do show up on election day and vote? Definitely have a lot of thoughts here, but there's one that's especially important to me, and that's that 
Younger people care about the planet in part because we know that whatever happens, we're going to have to live through it. If sea levels rise and cause flooding, we'll have to live through that. If we can't buy homes because insurance premiums are skyrocketing or values keep inflating because of unexpected migration or private companies buying up all the land, we're going to have to live through that. If tiny fibers from all the fast fashion and pesticides and plastic in our world are shown to contribute to rising rates of cancer among people under 30, that's a very specific statistic because they've been shown to do that, or to harm fertility or cognitive health, we're going to have to live through that. The thing is, some of what I just named, a lot of those health and financial risks, those have already arrived and they're already hurting people. So that's why I think folks in my generation and, and, and below care about this. It's because just like every other generation, we want to live good and healthy lives and it's getting harder and harder to do that. So for all the talk about the importance of climate, I think for a lot of folks in my age group, when we look at where current systems have and haven't gotten us, we don't always see meaningful enough progress to address those things. We don't always feel it. We don't always hear about it. And not all of us are working in the climate or environmental space like I am and have time to keep up with it. So that's why anyone who would want to lead or more importantly to serve should prioritize the health and well-being of our planet because that underpins the health and well-being of all people. And if they don't, then folks really shouldn't be surprised if those in my generation aren't inspired because they're not offering something that would really secure the opportunity to live a healthy and well life. I think that's really the thing underpinning here is that folks want to be okay as long as they see a pathway towards being okay, which I don't think a lot of folks feel today. I do think that they'll be inspired to take civic action. And I think if they don't see that pathway, then they won't be. I would just add to that. It is a strategy of a number of folks who are running for office to really go after the very integrity of elections. And that's real. They're just trying to suppress people from showing up at the polls because folks just don't have that confidence in the integrity of our electoral system. I think once again, it's a double-edged sword where we have to just continue to turn people out and also say, your vote does matter. This will be done in an integrity way. You know, every vote will be counted and will make a difference. So I think that in addition to what Pedro talked about, for young voters in particular, it's just so important for them to to feel and understand that the system for for voting is still has integrity and is critical that they show up. Dan, Pedro, we covered a lot today. You're doing a lot. Thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you're doing. Best of luck. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. Thanks again.